We have good, I have an announcement to make before we get started tonight. All uh, seat rentals, all the seat rentals that we've traditionally required at Preston City Bible Church have been suspended. So you don't have to rent seats anymore. It's absolutely free. If you're watching online, you don't have to wait till we sort of spend seat rentals. That's all been taken care of. So uh, don't let that be an obstacle <laughs> to being together. In Romans chapter 8, speaking of obligations, so then, brethren, we are under obligation not to the flesh, understand the sinful nature that we still struggle with, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you're living according to the flesh, you must die. And that's a functional death, a function, a separation from God in your experience. But if by the Spirit of God, that's the Holy Spirit, you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him so that we may also be glorified together with him. I know no better place in the Bible to give us a perspective about our lives, our responsibilities, and our troubles than Romans chapter 8. And on that, let's take a moment for silent prayer, make sure we're in fellowship with God, fellowship being broken through the exercise of the prerogatives of the flesh, giving the freedom for your flesh to express itself by delegating your volition to its, uh, its lust, saying yes to the temptations of the flesh. That means the sin nature, not just sexual temptation. We don't mean that. We mean when the sin nature proposes sin and we, with our free volition, separated from sin's power through the blood of Christ, choose to re-enslave ourselves. That's where the believer's sin enters and it becomes a cause for our defilement. It is a breakdown of fellowship with God. It is a forfeiture of the work of the Spirit is a quenching and a grieving of the Holy Spirit. We always uh, want to challenge you with the grace of God that if we confess our sins, He is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's take a moment for silent prayer, and I'll open us into Isaiah 23. Let's pray. Our Father, we bless you and praise you for the privilege of coming to you by your grace, this time in history, living in light of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, the great victory lap that we are still running in the light of the fulfillment of so much that you've promised. Thank you that the Holy Spirit, as we've seen recently, is the earnest of our inheritance, the very beginning of the distribution, which is in Christ who is the heir of all things. Father, we open your word tonight with eager hearts to know you, to know who you are and what you expect because you've revealed yourself. We recognize in Proverbs 25, it's the glory of God to conceal a matter and the glory of kings to search it out. Father, we want to rule with Christ, and so we're going to search. We're going to dig. We ask that you strengthen us in this focus before we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. The more I read Isaiah chapters 13 through 23, the little folio of God's oracles of judgment on the nations, the more I believe it sort of functions as an appendix to what you had in chapters 1 through 12. In Isaiah's ministry until about the year 701 or so when it seems that these oracles were delivered, somewhere between the ministry of Ahaz and the destruction of the northern kingdom in 722, and then King Ahaz and, and, and his son and it's Jotham, it, it seems that we're finished with God's oracles of the nations historically around 701 B.C. And they're mostly like newspaper oracles. They're mostly prophecies of what's about to happen in the near future. Uh, we'll see the conclusion of the Tyre um, the Oracle against Tyre, uh, where there's a 70-year um, 
suspension, a 70-year devastation, and then they will be restored. And that probably went from around 701 to 631 B.C. is the best we can do on the history of it. And so this is the stuff of history where God is going to um, the nation of Israel, and tell, of, of Judah, the southern kingdom, and through the prophet Isaiah telling uh, them what's happening in the long term with the coming kingdom of Messiah, and in the near term with uh, what's going to happen with Assyria and how Assyria is going to bring judgment, and yet Assyria will be judged. And so the Assyrian crisis is the conclusion of this portion of the book of Isaiah, which takes us all the way to chapter uh, 39. And, and in his day, in the 700s B.C., to the uh, early 600s B.C., Isaiah, the, the, the problem they're facing historically is the Assyrian uh, overlordship over the region. And this is a picture of what we call the Fertile Crescent. It's also called the Levant. It's the land where the great empire builders built between these two big old rivers right here, the river uh, Euphrates and the Tigris River. And the land between the rivers, they called historically the land between the rivers because they called it Mesopotamia, the rivers. Mesopotamia, the land between the two rivers. And so notice the map is kind of tan colored and it makes us think it's pretty arid. It is. It's pretty, it, it is now and probably generally was back then. But these rivers are the cause for there to be agriculture and farming and support for, for civilizations. And these cities that are in Mesopotamia are the birthplaces of these great empires. Like this is the city, can you see right here? It says Asher, Asur it says. That's the, one of the historic birthplace homeland cities of the Assyrians. Asur it says in Hebrew, we say Assyrians. But They've got others. This is a, the big one. This is the big city of man built by Nimrod, Babel, and we call it Babylon. But every time you read the name of this city in Hebrew, it's Babel. It doesn't change after Genesis 11. We just call it Babylon later because we're following the, the world uh, in, our, in our names. This is a great city of the Assyrians. Jonah was the famous prophet who went to that. What town is that? It's funny how little kids, when I was a kid in Sunday school, I could tell you that Jonah went to Nineveh. I could even tell you that the people of Nineveh were Ninevites. But I didn't know that for a large portion of the Assyrian Empire's history, when they were ascendant, Nineveh was their capital city. It's like saying going to Washington, D.C., go to the Washingtonians. I mean, it's the capital of Nineveh, uh, I mean, of the Assyrians, and um, just north of Ashur. And so um, this is the area in the world down here at the bottom in the, on the Euphrates is this town called Ur, today called Al-Nasiriyah in Iraq. Uh, this is famous in the Bible because the first Jew was born there, and he wasn't a Jew until he was circumcised. And God called him and said, go to a land I'm going to show you. You leave your father's place. And this is where Abraham was from, Ur of the Chaldees. And he went and spent a lot of time up here in Haran with his family, but he left his family here and finally fully obeyed what God said and went to the land that God would show him down this way. So, Haran. And I do. Can you see my pointer? Oh. That was for dramatic effect. I know why you can't see the pointer. I appreciate everybody working through me with this rehearsal. Okay, Joel, we're going to back it up and start over. And so, so all that time, I was saying, this is Babylon down here. This is Ur, Ur of the Chaldees. Did y'all see Nineveh? Hey, all right. You're like, <laughs> some of you are like, I have no idea. And just smile and nod. Some of these people could read that. Uh, Haran is up here, okay, headed down. You know, see, he started down here and went up, followed the rivers up through what we call the Fertile Crescent. If you saw, you know, a photograph of vegetation or something, it would, you would see why would they call this area the Fertile Crescent? Because it's following these rivers where the water um, provides vegetation. Um, and so it's the biblical world. This is the place where the two great empires that disciplined Israel, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, held their sway. They were both based here. and We call them the eastern Semites, the children of Shem, whereas the people over here are the western Semites. 
Eastern and Western Semites. Now, the first empire is the Assyrians, and that's the Isaiah uh, empire he has to deal with. And again, headquartered mostly in his day in Nineveh. And then the other empire was the Neo-Babylonians. There was an earlier Babylonians that were famous, and then Assyria took them down, and, now, and, then, and then Babylon came back under Nabopolassar, whose son, the crown prince, destroyed, uh, began to destroy Jerusalem in 605. His name was Nebuchadnezzar. That's right. So the, the Babylonian empire, or the Neo-Chaldean empire, is the second wave. There are these unbelieving pagan people that build these massive empires, and their goal is to just go conquer territory. And in Jeremiah and Habakkuk's day, it was, it was Nebuchadnezzar. In, in Isaiah's day, it's Sennacherib and the and the destruction of the northern kingdom again in 722 B.C., and the complete encirclement and saturation of the southern kingdom to the point where um, Hezekiah, the king in David's line, is cooped up in Jerusalem under siege by Sennacherib and the Assyrians, but God delivered them miraculously as we've seen. And so through the story of these prophets that God sent to the southern kingdom, you have these two massive world empires that are conquering the Fertile Crescent and, and, uh, and you know, the, the civilized, if you will, world, uh, large, largely. And it's not everything that's happening in the world, but this is the big emphasis that the Bible's making. And these places are, these peoples, in their paganism and their rejection of God and their rebellion and their uh, wickedness, are being used by God. They're being raised up by God. They're being permitted to do what they want to do by a sovereign God who is using them in both the cases of the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom to discipline Israel as God promised in Leviticus 26. And nobody writing the headlines in those days thought that that's what this is all about. No one thought that God had said through Moses in the 1400s B.C., that when they didn't keep covenant with God, he was going to cause military destruction that eventually, in five phases of divine discipline, Leviticus 26 would remove them from the land. But that's exactly what happened in 722 B.C. with the Assyrians to the northern kingdom that they, they call Israel or Ephraim. And in 605 B.C., 597 and 586 with the Babylonians to the southern kingdom. And, um, and to us, that's really a, what matters. <laughs> Let me give you an example. Nebuchadnezzar has no impact on my life whatsoever. I don't, I don't care that he's Nebuchadnezzar II. The big Nebuchadnezzar the Great doesn't matter. He's not great to me. He doesn't influence my life. His acts, as, I, as far as I can tell, have no impact on the, um, the tax on the electrical grid here in Connecticut. I had no idea how that would impact my day-to-day life at all. But I know about him, and it's important to me that I know about him because of Leviticus 26. Because this is a fulfillment of what God promised he would do based on the bilateral covenant he made with Israel at Mount Sinai. And that the God we're dealing with in our day-to-day life who is not prophetically showing up with Moses or Elijah or Isaiah and saying, here's the deal with your life. He's saying it through the word by analogy, by this is how he works. This is who he is, what he's promised. These things that he said in Leviticus 26 in the 1400s actually happened at the hands of these pawns that God raised up. And when he was finished with them, he judged them. And that's the story of the 700s and 600s B.C. in the Bible. And it's not well known in Christianity because it's far away, because, well, if you do secular history, what I'm talking about isn't the focus. The focus is who had the most power and who was the next king and who's, who's going to play king of the mountain next and win. And the Bible talks about that too. Who follows Nebuchadnezzar? The Medo-Persians. And who follows the Medo-Persians? Alexander's Greeks. And they've divided into four. And who follows the Greeks? The Romans. Who follows the Romans? Well, after a while, a revived Roman Empire, the, the, the clay and iron mixed together in Daniel chapter 2. So what I'm saying is that the history you're living in is the history the Bible's talking about. And when you start thinking, if that hits you for the first time, um, there was a prophecy 1,400 years uh, before Christ came that when the Israelites disobeyed God in idolatry, he was going to raise up Gentile nations to punish them and eventually remove them from the land. And he actually did it in 722 and 586 B.C. And that history isn't that long ago. To us, it's, it's literally ancient history. 
this is the story of the ancient Near East, and in the New Testament era, we call it the Greco-Roman period because it's you know following that uh, statue of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar's dream. But uh, just to kind of orient us to what we're dealing with, these are ancient words and ancient poems, and they were probably set to music, some of them, and um, and there's a, there's, that's a, an interesting thought, but um, they're poetic and they're historic and they are reflections of what God said he would do. And sometimes we can see where in history what he said he would do happened, and sometimes we're kind of scratching our head and saying, I'm not sure that um, the specific thing we can know from history when this one happened, or if it has, maybe this is still something in the future that's going to be fulfilled. A lot of prophecy hasn't been fulfilled yet. And so I just want to kind of remind you as we close down this judgment of God on the, on the nations, a lot of these judgments that God proclaims are national and historic in the time in which they were given where the people are scrambling for how are we going to beat the Assyrians? You're not. God's using them. You're not going to beat the Assyrians. Well, before I get into the, the oracle of the tire, um, let me take a, a break on something. Oops, I don't want to show you that. And um, on, on that, and share something with you in our recent history. That's not what I wanted either. I believe Mick Jagger said that you don't always get what you want to get what you need, right? All right. I need this to work. And there it is. Anybody ever heard of James Hall Brooks? Died 1897, born or began his writing ministry that has had incredible impact on American Christendom in its, in its most um, conservative phase beginning in 1875, and I'm reading his works, and I'm partway through 1875. I've got 30 years ago, 27 years ago. But he wrote this incredible poem I've shared with you before called Nothing to Pay, to Do, or to Fear. And this is part of our heritage. He's called the father of American dispensationalism. He was no doubt impacted by Darby, though we don't have a lot of writing on the, the, the interaction between the two, but they were contemporaries. He was younger than Darby. Um... And the next generation. And uh, this guy uh, pastored and mentored uh, C.I. Schofield, who pastored and mentored Lewis Berry Chafer. And um, I don't think everything in the Schofield reference Bible is, all his, I don't think all of his notes are perfectly sound and uh, absolutely accurate, but his cross-references told America to study the Bible, to know God theologically, to know him categorically. And... Um, we're heirs to this, and this is, James Hall Brooks is one of the most wonderful people to read. So he wrote this great poem that I think speaks to all of us when we think about our salvation in the history in which we're living. And again, I'm comparing this to Isaiah's day because they had a prophet telling them on the streets of Jerusalem, here's the deal. He walked around for three years with um, not much on to say, this is what the Egyptians you're relying on are going to look like. They're going to be prisoners of war. And everyone's like, what a, what a spectacle. Hmm, that member of court is acting very strange these three years. And, and uh, God is speaking his word through Isaiah, and the people aren't receiving it. But we are. And I want God to send us a prophet, right? I want to know exactly what God thinks about the circumstances in history that we're dealing with. And there's a new work he's doing in us. He's got his Holy Spirit in us. He's given us a completed record in 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. And pastors teaching God's word through our history have really reminded us of what God has already done, like we just sang, up from the grave he arose, and the fact of the resurrection, and what that means about our destiny, and right now. So James Brooks, nothing to pay, to do, or to fear, says, nothing to pay, no, not a whit. There's only 50 lines. Nothing to do, no, not a bit. All that was needed to do or to pay, Jesus has done in his own blessed way. Nothing to do, no, not a stroke. God is the ca- gone is the captor, gone is the yoke. Now listen to it. Jesus at Calvary severed the chain, and none can prison his free man again. Nothing to fear, no, not a jot. Cleansed by the blood, every spot. Christ is my peace, and I have nothing at stake. Satan can that neither harass nor shake. Nothing to settle, all has been paid. Nothing of anger, peace 
has been made. Jesus alone is the sinner's resource. Peace he has made by the blood of his cross. What about judgment? I'm thankful to say Jesus has met it and borne it away, drank it all up when he hung on the tree, leaving a cup full of blessing for me. What about terror? Has not a place. And a heart that is filled with a sense of his grace. My peace is divine and it never can cloy. And that makes my heart overbubble with joy. Nothing of guilt, no, not a stain. How could the blood let any remain? My conscience is purged and my spirit is free. Precious that blood is to God and to me. What of the law? Ah, there I rejoice. Christ answered its claims and silenced its voice. The law was fulfilled when the work was all done. It never can speak to a justified one. What about death? Has in a sting. The grave to a Christian no terror can bring. For death has been conquered. The grave has been spoiled and every foeman and enemy foiled. What about feelings? This is my favorite line right here. Trust not in them. What of my standing? Who shall condemn? Since God is for me, there is nothing so clear. From Satan and man, I have nothing to fear. What of my body? Ah, that I may bring. To God is a holy, acceptable thing, for that is the temple where Jesus abides, the temple where God, by his Spirit, resides. Nothing to pay? No. Thanks be to God. The matter was settled. The price was the blood. The blood of the victim, a ransom divine. Believer, poor sinner, and peace shall be thine. What am I waiting for? Jesus, my Lord, to take down the tent and roll up the cord to be with himself in the mansions above, enjoying forever his infinite love. This is a poetic way of describing a Christian worldview based on God's revelation in Christ. And we have so much more now in this phase of history on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ. And um, that was the kind of stuff that Brooks published in the Truth magazine in 1875 through 1897, which is a fantastic treasure that is not really very well known. In Isaiah chapter 23, we close down the folio of oracles against the surrounding Gentile nations and the northern kingdom and southern kingdom with kind of an appendix on the the oracle to Tyre. Last time we saw that whale of ships of Tarshish opens and closes God's judgment on this commercial center that would feed and, uh, and, and run market for, from the Mediterranean all the way to Mesopotamia. It was kind of the, the waypoint, and uh, it was always known as a place of great wealth and human wickedness plus capacity or capability through riches equals greater increased wickedness. I'm paraphrasing Lord Acton. You know, he said power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, but that's only true because we're sinful. God is absolutely powerful and in his sovereignty he's also perfectly righteous. And 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 in sovereign righteous omnipotence there is no corruption there, but for us as sinners it is a problem. And so we, we want to be careful when we talk about Tyre and say it's synonymous with wealth and, and not say that wealth is wrong. The problem is that man is wrong and God owns all the wealth and he distributes the wealth and man messes it up. And, and so this is, this is the wickedness of man with wealth. That's why Jesus said that, that um, the love of money is the source of all sorts of wickedness. The, the love of money, not money but the love of money. And he also taught in Matthew 6 that you can't serve two masters. You cannot serve God and wealth. So, which one will it be? Well, the Tarshish oracle is helpful with that consideration because the people that are too big to fail, God says, not a problem. Too big to fail, watch this. And they failed because he brought a judgment on them. In verse 15, we hear of their eventual restoration, and it's called the Song of the Harlot. <laughs> so let's hear it. And that it will be in that day that Tyre will be forgotten, forgotten 70 years like the days of one king. So a king lives 
70 years is the kind of the average lifespan they were saying for a king. And, and I think the reason the king gets 70 years is because he gets the best medical care and food and protection and stuff like that. So if we're doing everything generally well, then 70 years. So in the, the period of a lifetime of one generation, and 70 years is an interesting number in the Bible. And again, the, the best we can do is we think this is the the destruction of Tyre by the Assyrians and eventually their restoration when Assyria fell around 630. So 700 to 630, about 70 years. At the end of 70 years will be for Tyre as the song of the harlot. So what is the song of the harlot? Well, the harlot is the forgotten harlot and she has to get her guitar out and play a song loud and shrill and make sure everyone hears it so they know she's back in business. That's what it's talking about. So the, the vanquished harlot, and by the way, the harlotry described here is not just idolatry. It's that everything about her is mercenary. Tyre is commercial, and it's only commercial. Everything's transactional. Everything is to gain for self. And so we're trading uh, as the only objective. And so that's one description is calling it uh, whoredom. Selling yourself for, for money. Take your harp. I said guitar, you could harp. Y'all, some of you are very interested to know that that's the word kinor here in Hebrew. And I have a pointer, I can show it to you. Kinor, take your kinor and surround or walk around the city, O Zona, that's been forgotten. Zona that's been shakak, that's been forgotten. Forgotten harlot. So you take your, your harp and walk around the city. After, after the 70 years. Do well by the strings is the literal Hebrew, and it's a poetic turn of phrase. My English Bible does not translate it that way. It says, pluck the strings skillfully. But it says, tov, it says yatav, the, the word to, to do good. Do well by the strings is an interesting flavor to say, and it means that you're going to make with some harping. Okay, that's what it is. And so pluck it skillfully is fine. Do well by the strings. Make plentiful. Now that's an interesting word too. Another verb that he says to cause to be much, to be great. So you're going to play this song loud or long, or you're going to play a bunch of notes. But it's an interesting way. I love music. We're a very musical church these last several years. <laughs> and we love to sing God's praises. And this is one of the, the to make, a plenty, make plentiful a song. So, uh, so you, you just imagine that she's putting out the music with this song so that you may be remembered. What's the problem with the harlot? She's been forgotten. Nobody remembers. The sea, remember, doesn't even remember the sea had built uh, Tyre. The, sea for, the, the mighty sea is going to say, I don't have any children right? Because Tyre's forgotten, but Tyre's going to be revived. Tyre's going to come. And so she gets to go fire up the trade engine again and go tell everybody, get some commercials going. I'm back. <laughs> oh, well, we, we can come start uh, 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 patronizing Tyre again is the idea. It will happen that in the end of 70 years, Yahweh will visit Tyre and she will return to a harlot's wages. So God is going to remove the destruction, the consequence of the destruction that's coming from the Assyrians, we think, and she'll be, go back to being in trade. And she'll play the harlot with all the kingdoms of the earth upon the face of the ground. You have the, all the, um, the mamlakot, the kingdoms of Ha'eris, of the earth or the land, upon the face of the Adamad, which is the ground or, or soil. Adam, he's made from dirt. The dirt was red. Edom. It means red. It's all the same word. Edom, Adam, Adama. It's all the same word group. And um, so uh, <laughs> this word does mean dust or, or ground or soil. And so it's saying everywhere in the world on the, 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 where, the, where the ground touches. And that's interesting, I think, using the word ground because Tyre is a seaport. And so they're just going to be far flung, flung. And I wonder about this. I think that this may be one of these prophetic you know, hilltop things where he's looking across and he doesn't see all the valleys. And he sees a restoration, perhaps in 630 of Tyre, but another restoration that's coming in the distant future. She will play the harlot with all the kingdoms of the earth upon the face of the ground. I think that means everywhere. Well, 
um, that's probably still future. I conjecture because of what happens next. It will be that her trading profit, a word we've had before, and her harlot's wages will be holy to the Lord. You're not supposed to give offerings from that kind of uh, business. That's not, that's not right. You're not supposed to go play harlot and then give the money as an offering to God. Say, I'm giving. <laughs> that's not what's supposed to happen. And so it's, it's shocking. So what is, what's happening? This is the thing we've heard about in Isaiah, little snippets all through, that there's coming a time when we're going to be blown away that Egypt will be called my people right alongside uh, Israel. Israel, my, Egypt, my people, and Assyria, my son, and, and, and Judah, my, you know, my, at the end of the oracle against Egypt in chapter 15, chapter, chapter 19. There's coming a time, and it is not here yet, even in our time, when all the nations are going to glorify God with all that they do. So you will have, apparently, like, for example, port cities that are in trade, and they will be conducting trade, and it will be trade under the aegis of the kingdom, and it won't be harlotry as it had been. Holy to the Lord. There's another interpretation. That's the long-distance interpretation. That's what I'm leaning toward. Okay, and notice how dogmatic I am. This, are, this is prophecy, and um, uh, we can be certain about what we can be certain about. One other possible interpretation is that later in the return... When they start to build um, the second temple in the 530s, that's, which is 100 years later, so the time doesn't work. It's 70 years, and then 100 years after that 70 years, they start building the temple. They would have used perhaps materials brought through Tyre to go build the temple. And so that the, the, the trade there was building the temple. I mean, it's possible that that's the reference. It's possible, but the timing is hard since he's really clear on 70 years and stuff. But, but notice whether my long-time interpretation is right, because harlotry and the trade among all the nations is in Revelation and the tribulation period and, um, and Mesopotamia and Babylon, and, and this, is, this is a theme that comes back. And uh, you've got Babylon, the, the religion. You've got Babylon, the, mar- the, the market system. And Tyre, perhaps, as a port, I think. But the, regardless of the way you interpret this, notice that was, what was unclean and, and, and set apart away from God is now set apart to God. And it, not because God's going to say, oh, unclean, I don't care. It's because God is going to have a righteous kingdom, and all the nations are going to worship him. It will not be stored up or hoarded. For unto those who dwell before Yahweh, he will bring, be a trading prophet in order to eat and in order to be satiated and for magnificent attire. Now, my translation is word for word in the sequence of the words in Hebrew. And I think that um, something got missed. And I could, you know, I, I could be wrong about this. But in verse 18, it says, It will not be stored up. Or hoarded, but her gain will become sufficient, food and choice attire. It doesn't say her gain. It said he, third person, masculine, singular. It's, it's, it's sig- signified in the language. He will be a trading prophet. So those who dwell before the Lord, he will be a trading prophet. He is the thing that you're going for in order to eat or to be satiated for magnificent attire. The glory of Tyre is its independent wealth, described as harlotry. But there's coming a time when God himself is going to be their desire, their objective. And that's the redemption power of God. And that's what he wants for the nations. And that's 2 Peter 3. And that's a, that's a bright spot at the end of this oracle of judgment on all the nations. And it's a riddle. And so I think this hasn't happened yet. I think we're talking in verse 18 about the distant future. It's just four verses. It it's, says 70 years like three times. 70 years is the period of the Babylonian captivity, but that's a, that's 100 years later. So um, 
Of course, there's a lot more work to do in prophecy, but I take this to be, again, the, the mountaintops. He's looking at the 6, 630. There's going to be the restoration of Tyre after the Assyrians, and it happened that way. The Assyrians lost dominance, and Tyre could be rebuilt and, and, and start back up as a commercial power. But there's coming a time when their commercial work is for Yahweh, the God of Israel. This is how you write this name if you just write the consonants, and that's all we have. We have the consonants of the name. We don't have the vowels. Um, because they haven't been preserved, because they uh, wrote the wrong vowels in to make sure that the gringos wouldn't mispronounce it or say, or actually say the name of the Lord. So uh, we conjecture Yahweh there. All right. That is the conclusion of the oracle, and it is a bright spot where God ends up being all and in all. That the wickedness of... Now, here's what, what I do with the tire in chapter uh, 23, 1 through 14, is I say, they're the other, and we don't want to be like them. But at the end, notice that God has come over and he's taken the other and he's made them one of us. And that is redemption. And God is bigger than we think. And he is sovereign. And, it, and sovereignty is not quite the same thing as his authority. I'm talking about authority a lot in this discussion on government. Authority is the right to make the decision. Sovereignty goes a little bit beyond that and makes sure that God gets his outcome. Whatever he wants, he gets. And and I didn't say he gets it right now. God isn't willing that any should perish, but all come to repentance. But it is that God gets what he wants. And that doesn't make me a universalist. It makes me say God has a sovereign plan and he's going to work it together for good. And I and you and I who love him and are called according to his purpose are part of that. All right, let's do some summary. As we close this folio and go into Isaiah 24 through 27, which is the little apocalypse of the book of Isaiah, it's very interesting to read chapters 24 through 27 in comparison with Revelation 6 through 19. But our theology uh, has been very richly addressed through this little section of Isaiah, and I thought it'd be nice to summarize it. What do we know better of God and his ways from reading Isaiah chapters 13 through 23? Well, let me read 10 chapters of the Bible and I'll get back to you. Well, we just did that, so let's talk about it. Regarding God, the first point in theology is who is God? What are we dealing with? Who is, who is this one that we must deal with? The, the one God who exists eternally as uh, three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit. One in essence, three in person. This God who is the creator, the sustainer, the savior, the one whose glory is the point of all of creation. Uh, the God who has you in his grip and has called you his child through his son. What do we learn about God in Isaiah 13 through 23? We definitely learn of his sovereignty, that it's, you know, he builds these massive empires so that you can say, and God's bigger than that. He builds this massive empire because it's just a paddle that he's whittling to go spank Israel with. That's what it's for. And he's bigger than the wickedness of the Assyrians or the wickedness of Judah, and he's going to do what he wants to do his way. And he's sovereign, and you're not going to get around him. And that's so important. You can't break the game and, and force the horsey to go into a, a, a four steps and then one two over. It doesn't work. The game works the way the sovereign creator makes it work, and you can't fight him. You won't win. If you find yourself, no, I got this, I'm independent, I'm fighting him, you are now demonstrating his glory in opposition to him. And as I see it, there are two ways you can relate to God's sovereignty. I wish you'd listen to this. There are two ways that I see you can relate to God's sovereignty. The first way is you can say, God is God and I am not, so I'm under him and I need to get it his way, not as I will, but your will be done. That's the first way Jesus showed us that. And then there's the other way. There's the Isaiah chapter 14 way, I will, I will, I will. And then you will receive judgment from God. The I will have it God's way, whatever that way is, and I subordinate myself to that, is life and peace and joy and eternal bliss because you're participating with God willingly to glorify him as a, as a participant, as an agent within that, with your own volition, with your own agency. Satan possesses Judas and then Judas betrays Jesus so that the temple guards arrest him and they eventually put him on a cross. Satan is instrumental by his own volition, doing what he wants to do. He's going to destroy this Jewish Messiah. He's instrumental in getting him on the cross, Satan himself working within Judas. That is not outside of God's sovereign provision. God is permitting this to happen because God's purpose, 
which apparently Satan doesn't know, on the night before the crucifixion, God's purpose is that the Son of Man be nailed to a cross, hung between heaven and earth, and then all the sins of man be poured out on him and judged so that Jesus breaks the power of sin and defeats the enemy. And so now Satan's a vanquished foe who got Jesus put on the cross by his own devices. See, there are two ways you can deal with God's sovereignty. You can be a demonstration that you can't beat the house. You can't beat him. Do all the, the rebel, rebellion and fighting against God you want. The super creature has tried it and been, I mean, this is one of the greatest things that happens in the Gospels, that Satan is possessing Judas. And then we're, like, we're reading a lot. We're like, oh, no. Judas went out, and it was night. And immediately Satan entered him. And he goes to the temple guards, and he sells Jesus out. And then they, then they crucify him. And that's exactly what God wanted to happen. He wanted the Son of Man to die for your sins on the cross. And the Son even said it. Was anybody listening? If the Son of Man is lifted up, he'll draw all people to him. And, and at what point does the enemy recognize what's happening as darkness covers Golgotha? And he screams out Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, they, these are the two ways we deal with sovereignty. You can be a participant willingly using your volition, which is delegated to you, to be uh, as an agent about his works according to his word and in our age with his spirit working in you, or you can be a proverb. You can be an example of God's sovereignty wins despite your best devious efforts. So which do you want? It's, these, this is reality. There's no other alternative. And you can try to find the other middle road, but you'll find that you're just the proverb. Don't be a proverb. God is sovereign, and he's going to discipline Israel with Assyria, whether they go visit with Egypt or whether they go make an alliance with the Syrians or the Ephraimites. He's going to discipline them until they turn their hearts to God, and that's what Hezekiah does, and then you have the great deliverance. We also see God's righteousness. God is not defiled by using the wickedness of wicked men to accomplish his objectives. I don't recommend you try this, but God does not suffer the slightest bit. When Jesus touches the leper, the leprosy doesn't come into Jesus and defile perfect righteousness. The leprosy is destroyed. He is not at all troubled to touch that which is unclean. He touches dead bodies. The dead bodies become alive. See, God can do this. And this is a picture of his perfect righteousness. We have this correct theology we learn from Paul that God in his righteousness is not going to countenance sin. And he's going to deal with sin, and that's all true. But we also need to recognize that it's not fragile. It's an infinitely powerful diamond, his perfect righteousness. And he isn't so soiled, and that's great news because that speaks to the rest of history and all the wickedness and all the horrors and all the things you can point to in world history that you can point to man and God, what are you doing and how are you letting this? We, these are good questions after the flesh. But in a post-Job uh, 38 through 42 world where God said, I've got something I'm doing here, trust me, and the end. He's sovereign. He has the right to make that claim. He's your creator, and he is executing perfect righteousness in time. One of the great insights someone shared with me the other day after talking about God and government was the only way I can square what you're saying about God having any impact on government, this is a person who lives in Connecticut, is um, that there's got to be like a time factor <laughs> because uh, we're not ruling correctly under God. And it seems like that's never going to happen. And I said, I know, but God isn't slow about his promise of some count slowness. You know, the, the, the kingdom is coming and Jesus is going to come back and set it up. So we also learn in Isaiah 13 through 23 of God's omnipotence, his power, which goes hand in hand with his sovereignty. He is also patient, why does Isaiah write to these people, these idolaters, these pagans, these people passing their children through the fire to Molech and these other uh, horrible things they do? Why is God sending his word and his prophet? Why does Isaiah get to walk around in his drawers for uh, three years um, representing prisoners of war from Egypt? And why, why does God, and God, by the way, in his omniscience knows that the Israelites are going to reject Isaiah. They're going to reject his message. Jesus said, which one of the, prof the prophets did your children, your, your father's not kill? And the history is, the legend is, we don't have it in the scriptures, but the one sawn in half, we think is in the days of Manasseh, was Isaiah. We think he died uh, at the hands of the, 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 the house of David. That's, I mean, I'm not dogmatic about that, but something, something happened to Isaiah like that, because Jesus said. 
But here's the thing. God sent him anyway. He sent him with his word, and he gave him a chance. And he let him hear, and this is God's patience. And it's, it's, it's God's forbearance. And that's one of the answers in our big problem about the world and wickedness and, and natural evil and human evil and Viktor Frankl and all. Like, why does God let all this happen? The answer must be because he's waiting for me to become a believer in 1978 or 1979, around there. He's, he, he let history continue so that I could have eternal life. And, and that's part of the story. And, but what about all the horrible things that happened? There are these horrible things. And I don't have an answer for each specific one. I have a big picture answer that God's telling a story here. And it's a perfectly righteous, good, and holy story. And righteousness prevails. And I have God's righteousness because history continued through 1979 and I received Christ. For, just for my own experience. God is patient. He is forbearing. And that doesn't mean he's not there. It means that he's patient. But eventually, the, the forbearance expires. It doesn't mean God runs out of patience. It means he elects sovereignly to when he's going to drop the hammer. And he did on all these nations that he mentioned. We also learn of God's objectives. God's going to get his way. And he has a, a way that he's going for. And um, we heard a lot about this in the first folio in, in chapters 1 through 12. But, um, for example, God isn't about defeating the Assyrians. The people on the street in Jerusalem have to defeat the Assyrians. But God is not all about defeating the Assyrians. He's raising them up to defeat Judah. He's going to use them to kill the entire northern kingdom and, and well, destroy them and transport them, and then they become the Samaritans. But man and his on the street in Jerusalem, we've got to form these alliances. Our objectives from our human viewpoint, our limited frame, are not his objectives, and we need to keep that in mind in our time as we talk about our politics and politics by more kinetic means in, in military affairs. I believe your generation, young people, is going to be challenged with a war like my grandparents' generation was. I think it must. It must. And it may be a war that the Bible describes, and it may be something prior to that. But it seems like there must be, after 80 years, 80-plus years of unparalleled peace, generally speaking, in world affairs, it seems like there must be um, another conflagration. And... Uh, that's not a prophecy. I'm just saying it seems that that's the nature of, of the arrangement. And um, so we're worried about that. But God is doing something with that, that, with that that's bigger than uh, who wins that. For example, let me just apply biblical prophecy to the time in which we live. There has to be in the future a, a one world government in rebellion against God. There has to be an attempted one world government in rebellion against God. It has to be led by a ruler that is equated with God so that people worship him as the Messiah. And that's why he's called Antichrist. He's the replacement or counterfeit for Christ. There has to be this one world government. It's going to come. It's an evil thing. A one world government opposed to God was attempted in Genesis 11. And God blessed the nations by giving us languages. See, we, uh, other words for yes, <laughs> right? God, God divided the nations. He, he established nations. We understand the problems of globalism. They're big problems. I'm, I'm always, um, I, I, you know, I pull out my trick-or-treat stuff, my, my Halloween scary stuff when I talk about how one of the presidential candidates not too long ago was all about giving um, parental sovereignty over their children to the United Nations. They were going to use the federal government through the Congress to, uh, or a presidential decree. They were going to try to give, uh, to sign the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of a Child, which breaks the bond uh, authoritatively between parents and children and says they belong to the world, to the United Nations. And so now the United Nations law supersedes even your state or local law on the, the training of children and the rod and all that because it takes a village. It takes a global village. And we're like, this is wrong. And this is, this is, the, this is dumpster fire wrong. This is crazy. You go, you go have your dumpster fire over there. This is America. You know, like we don't want that. 
But, but this kind of insanity is going to happen. And that doesn't mean that God likes globalism. It means that God is going to bring the world to the place that he wants it for his son to come back. And Israel is going to look on the one they've pierced and they're going to mourn and they're going to receive their savior and all of Israel is going to be saved. And that's really the bigger picture of what's going on. Not, oh no, they're, they're going more towards a socialist, uh, you know, EU style thing. And they're going to, they're going to make, I suspect that they're talking about making the, the, the North American corridor thing. We're going to get the North American union and have, what do they call it? The Ameros. For the, for the new currency, and they, they want to do all that, and it's, that's a stepping stone to a globalist, one-world you know, system, and it seems like all the political opponents that I can line up are all for one-world government. They're all for internationalism and, and no nationalism, no state function of independent states, and, and I'm, I think that's just evil. I think it's completely wrong, but I also think it's going to happen, and, I'm, and it doesn't mean I won't fight. <laughs> I'll fight, but I think it's going to happen. At some point, uh, the Lord told Jeremiah to tell Israel, don't fight. Nebuchadnezzar's going to do this. Put your arms down. All right. What do we learn about man in Isaiah? We learn his sinfulness, especially arrogance. It's, on every, it's in every chapter that man is exalting himself as independent of God. There's only one independent. It's God. There's only one who can say, I am. Everyone else has to say, I am because you made me that way. I am because you sustained me. I am because of you. But God just says, I am. And this desire for humans to seek independence was taught to us by the one who has deceived the nations. And we read about him in Isaiah 14 in this chunk. We learn of man's sinfulness and his arrogance. We learn about vain efforts to reject God's purpose. Again, you can pick whether you're the proverb or whether you're the willing participant in God's agenda. All right, let's, let's, Father, what's on the training schedule? I'll be about your work today. That's the way to live your life. Not, what can I do for me in disregard of God? Because then you're a proverb. His vain efforts to reject God's purpose, God's going to get his way. And my prayer for all of you is that his way is not to showcase who he is despite your failure to properly use your volition. But he will. He's going to glorify himself. We learn that man is ignorant of God's revelation. The people in Isaiah's day rejected his message. This gold that we've received from this deposit of revelation, the initial audience laughed at it. They scorned it. They mocked it because they didn't believe in God, so they didn't believe God's word from God's prophet. And this is what we have. We are basically ignorant unless God reveals to us. And when God is speaking, if we're doing this, then we're going to remain ignorant. And there is the ignorance that we're all born with in Proverbs. It's called the petit, the gullible. You don't really know because you don't know yet. But then there's the real fool in Proverbs, the person, the casil, there's a fool. Apparently he's a fool because he wants to be, because he has chosen that he will reject the wisdom. He won't receive when it's provided. We're all born in need as gullible, but, but we need but we need to open our hearts, and when wisdom shows up, embrace her, says Solomon to his sons. And so the fool says, I'm not going to hear it. And so now willful ignorance. And that's the world you live in. We learn of man a lot of bad things. We learn that we have prospects apart from God or judgment and waste. Your life is a waste. It's a vapor. It doesn't matter. And if God's account of your life is not approved, I don't like what you did there, then that's just a total waste. Because anything anyone else has to say about it is passing away, the fame that you might have. I recently saw an article that said that Babe Ruth's uh, ball glove went up for auction and it sold for some large sum. I looked at the picture of this thing. It looked like, it looked like an oven mitt <laughs> with fingers. <laughs> A million, 1.5, yeah. Right? So, okay, the Babe. They're buying his, his trinkets. They're buying his relics. And that's about as good as it gets after the flesh. Is, uh, he died, was it 100 years ago? He died a long time ago, several, a couple generations back. And so, so he's still a legend in that arena. How long will he be a legend? Is he going to make it to 2,500? In the year 2550, are they going to be uh, passing his ball glove around? Probably not, right? They probably have done something else. And all of you know that that's, that's a, we're in the kingdom at that point. But actually, we don't know when that is, but obviously. But the point is that 
the best you could hope for is that people remember you, that you have fame and super wealthy people that aren't worried about the needs of this life. They start worrying about their legacy. Well, how will I be remembered? And that's a sad thing because it doesn't matter how you be remembered. In an atheistic, materialistic frame, what people are going to say about you after you're dead, uh, you're, 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 you're worm lunch until you're just dust. That's ridiculous that that would be an objective. But you see why we have it because we're trying. We want eternality. We want immortality. We want to keep going. And so in an, in an atheistic frame, what humans think about me, that's what matters. But the truth of that urge that we have that God set eternity in our hearts is that we want God to say, mine forever and I have an eternal purpose for you. And by the way, everyone will live forever, just some apart from God in eternal flames and some ruling with Christ in his eternal kingdom. All right, so we don't have any hope apart from God, and that is very evident throughout Isaiah 13 through 23, and so we're totally dependent on him. Until you break down and say, that's it, I can't, you do it. You are all very competent, you're all very capable in various ways, but compared to God, you're not. And I want you to know that there is in God's design for his, his children a providential arrangement of weakness, a providential uh, appointment you have with being brought to the end of your capabilities to say, God, help me because I can't. And that's what the Apostle Paul experienced, and I think it's patterned for us. So that I wouldn't exalt myself, he gave me a thorn in the flesh. Three times I implored him to remove it, and he said no. And why did Jesus Christ say no to the Apostle Paul by the thorn in the flesh? He said, because my power is brought to its full expression when you are powerless. We're totally dependent on him whether we know it or not. Better to learn it here than learn it the hard way. And if you need to, do both. But you need to learn this. We're totally dependent on him. We also see that in rebellion against him and our denial of his rights to say he's in charge, we frantically cast about for anything to satisfy us, anything to solve whatever our problem is. The great problem of our time is boredom. Boredom exists because we're full because we're at ease, because we're in relative safety in our homes, and so we don't have to do the things of basic upkeep of life, like field, like, like farm the field to, to make sure we eat through the winter, and we don't have to fight, uh, and we don't have to secure the homestead and train the dog to, to wake us up if somebody's outside. I mean, we need to do those things, but, but we're relatively safety and safe and secure, so what's left, if we're, there's always food, it just shows up, it's always, then we're bored. We're bored. And that's hell for a lot of us. That's my greatest fear in life, right? Is boredom. I remember when I was a kid, just, just the other day, we had to do a long, long road trip. My grandparents lived in Dallas, Texas, and Longview, Texas was a two-hour drive from Dallas, Texas. So we had to go on a long road trip to go see my grandparents, my mom's parents. So we'd get in the car, and we'd drive that long, long, boring two-hour drive. And Hopefully, y'all are all aware that two hours is like a, a leisurely, fun kind of thing. You know, let's go. But as a little kid, it's forever. So what did I do? I brought every, I brought a, a foot, a foot long stack of of, uh, of coloring books and toys. I would bring. I was. I was. I would come with. And they were. Are you bringing all that? Yeah. And what was I doing? I was. I was frightened to death that I was going to be bored in the car. Because it's the greatest fear. But can you imagine these little children in the streets in, uh, in these cities in Ukraine that have been shelled, completely destroyed by the Russian army? Are they scared of being bored? What are, they're, they're longing for a, a, coal, a, a clean glass of water. Right? They're, they're shell-shocked. They're, they're wondering what happened to their parents. Right? But this is, see, the pro- boredom is, is the product, product of, of, of peace and ease. And so it's interesting how we'll never be satisfied in this life. Oh, if I could just have X. Well, you get X and you're like, well, now I'm bored. <laughs> well, now you have to find something else you want and go after that. And, and that's the striving after wind of this life. This is man's frantic search for solutions. And you found the solution with a capital S if you find your Savior a love and relationship with him where he talks to you through his word and you talk to him in prayer and you actually live that life, that's the stuff. That's what life is about. We also found that we only have hope in God's answers, not in man's answers. 
And we also found that God, for man, our provision comes from God's grace. He's a loving father, and he wants a consistent relationship with us. If you'll bear with me for just one moment, we learn from God's word about God's word, bibliology in Isaiah. We learn its source. Isaiah got his oracle from God, and then he said what God told him to say. He didn't wake up one morning and say, I think I'll go about uh, with a draft. God said, I got something for you, Isaiah. And he's like, okay, Lord. And he walks around like a prisoner of war for three years. Isaiah is a pack mule carrying God's burden. And Massah, or oracle, means burden. And the source of the oracles of Isaiah is God himself. And its reception among human beings was not great. The source is divine. And just like what man does with God in general, man rejects God's word. And if you want to join the the world then you have to join the rejection of God's word. And if you want to embrace God and his word, then you have to stand apart from the world enough to speak the truth into it and not walk with them. You have to stand and talk to it. You have to be be in the world, but not of it. But this is the way the word of God works. If you commit yourself to God and his word, you will find yourself at odds with the world. Humans don't want it. But we also see the benefits of God's word. Those that listened to the oracles of Isaiah had great blessing because they had the direct word of God from God's prophet. And they heard it in their language. And they're on the streets speaking Hebrew. Shema Yisrael, Adonai, And they hear in their language the direct revelation of God through Isaiah. Can you imagine being the recipients, the remnant of Judah that heard these words and believed them because they were from God, from God's prophet? What amazing thing to have that connection to the creator because his prophet is speaking. And so we see the power of God's word. And what is that power? He says what's going to happen, being omnipotent and omniscient, and he makes it happen. And so they knew how this was going to go. Imagine imagine the confusion and the political chaos in Isaiah's world. But the people listening to Isaiah's oracle say, we don't need to go appease Assyria. We don't need to go to Egypt. We don't need to do all these things. We need to break ourselves before Yahweh and call out to him. And that is the power of God's word. You know what God wants because he tells you. And we learn as we close about God's enemy, the devil. And this is just a thumbnail of some of the things that we learn of our theology in Isaiah chapters 13 through 23. God's enemy, the devil, we hear his record in Isaiah chapter 12. I'm sorry, Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. Isaiah chapter 14. And it is, I'll read it very briefly. How you've fallen from heaven, star of the morning, son of the dawn, Halal ben Shahar, translated uh, Lucifer in the Latin, but just Halal ben Shahar is what he's called, son of the morning. You've been cut down to the earth, you've weakened the nations. But you said in your heart the five I wills. You said I will ascend to heaven, will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit in the mount of the assembly in the recesses of the north, meaning I'm going to ascend to the farthest height so that God would now be under him. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. It starts with independence and it ends with competition because independence from God is competition. He, the creator, has a claim. And when you say, I don't want that claim, I'm going to throw off that yoke, you're now in rebellion. You're now squaring off against him. The Apostle Paul had an interesting question to the Galatians. He said, am I now your enemy because I've told you the truth? Think about how this works. There is an infinitesimally small line that you can't stand on between the truth and the lie. It's one or the other. You can't get on the line. So you're either squaring off against God or you're next to him. It's one or the other. And, I, and this, is the, this is the origin of Satan's fall. Satan's objectives are evident. They are to glorify himself. And we see in Isaiah, in the, if, in the historical context and what Isaiah says, the impact of the deceiver on geopolitics. Satan thinks he's running the Assyrians. God's raising up the Assyrians. He's using Satan to do it. Satan thinks he's stirring up the people to rebel against God and Judah. And he's working all these things, but God is sovereign over even what Satan is doing. We hear of Satan's destiny, that he is uh, destined to uh, destruction, and his character is arrogance, 
by way of independence from his creator. James Hall Brooks said, it is finished in 1875. He said, sinner, why that look of sadness? Why thus weep and sigh and groan? All thy unbelief is madness. All thy griefs could not atone. It is finished. Hallelujah. Jesus saves and he alone. You can sing this to angels from the realms of glory. We won't, but you could. Why such longing for salvation? Why not take him at his word? Or however that song goes. Why, not, why such longing for salvation? Why not take him at his word? There is now no condemnation to the soul that trusts the Lord. It is finished. Hallelujah. Oh, what joy it doth afford. See for sin what bitter anguish Jesus bore upon the tree. See him left by God to languish in atoning agony. It is finished. Hallelujah. Jesus died from wrath to free. Tis thyself. This is my favorite line in this one. Tis thyself thou art discerning. You're not seeing God. You're seeing what you're going through. Tis thyself thou art discerning, not the dying lamb of God, weeping, striving, never learning how he bore sin's heavy load. It is finished. Hallelujah. God is satisfied through blood. At the cross is now thy station. See, fixate on your trouble. No, at the cross is now your station. Fixate on him. Lo, without thy grief or prayer, what a full and free salvation God has waiting for thee there. It is finished. Hallelujah. Free from all thy anxious care. Now begin thy hallelujah. God himself delights to hear. Jesus, Savior, hallelujah, which means praise the Lord. Sweetest song that greets his ear. It is finished. Hallelujah. Perfect love hath cast out fear. Father, thank you for the time we've invested that you provided for us to think about you and your word. Thank you for the revelation that continued past the days of Isaiah to the fullness that we have of the one he spoke of, our great Savior, the Son who had been given to us. Father, we look forward even to more of what Isaiah said to him ruling in this coming kingdom and all the nations streaming to him in Jerusalem to hear from him. Glorify yourself in our lives as we consider him and as we choose not to be the proverb in rebellion against you, but to be the willing agent with the agency you've given us. We pray it in Jesus' name. We all said, Amen. Amen.